My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. If someone was the only person prepared to put their hand up, it's very hard to criticize the way someone does a role. Um, so at times I wasn't happy where or, or how people were doing things. And I, with that mindset, put my hand up and said, okay, well, I'm going to run for that position as well. Um, and probably had very little experience in that world. And This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Jim Ballery who grew up in country towns across New South Wales and Queensland. After working in the mines, he's now the founder and director of New Style Developments where he has undertaken over $30 million worth of property deals. Valerie may have been born in Sydney, but he's a country boy at heart. He took the skills and lessons he learned from working in coal mines and trade units and applied them to the property development business he runs. I'm the director of uh, the sole director of New Style Developments, and I guess my role is is more about the oversight into working with our team, both internally and externally um, in development space. Uh, It's important that you have the right consultants, but it's also important that you do have the relationship with them to be able to to drive them and give them the right the right input. So it's all about making sure that I guess the buck stops with me to make sure that internally and externally we're doing the thing that's delivering the right result for our investors um, and making sure everyone's adequately safeguarded predominantly in the Brisbane City Council um, and and more aligned to infill developments rather than the greenfield ones. Just feel that it's probably a lot better infill where I believe that they're a better product, the growth is more stabilised because the market's already established rather than the fluctuation that you might get in the greenfield areas. Valerie explains on what infill versus greenfield is. Okay, so an infill development is generally uh, referred to as a development that is being done within an area that has got significant infrastructure around it. So it's already got roads, uh, shops, um, schools, etc. That all the infrastructure is there. It's surrounded by houses that have been there for a uh, quite a while. A greenfield development is more going into the outer suburbs of an area. Uh, a lot of times you're creating your own roads. At times they will often do master planned estates in those areas where they're creating their own schools and 
and shopping precincts as well. So they're planning um, quite a large area. Uh, Greenfield, you'll generally see a you know, thousand lot subdivisions uh, in in number of stages. Where infield could be anything from a, a one to two up to you know sometimes 30, 40 lot subdivisions. Um, but generally, you won't find much bigger than about you know thirty to fifty lot subdivisions or a, a big infill development. No, very much so. And um, you know they, they've got a. I, I guess it's it's something you know the volumes there for them. They've they've generally been holding a property for a number of years, and um, there's obviously a lot more. There's, there's a lot more competition I guess when you're going against you know some of the really major players here that have held the property for a, a long time and bought at the right price so you know it's for me it's about not wanting to go and do that direct competition and keeping the infill areas where we can be you know making sure that our competition is a general mum and dad sale so we keep our new builds at the right price for the suburb and it becomes a, an attractive option for buyers. He shares what a typical day looks like for him at the moment. So any given day at the moment, uh, I guess uh, I do have a team. So we've got um, Ben who, who does a lot of our operational and field work and Anna who provides our in sales and, and development management and acquisition areas. So <coughs> excuse me. So there'll be a lot of interaction with them overseeing where developments are in all areas. Uh, a lot of, I guess, networking and touching base um whether it be through consultants and upskilling or whether it be just interacting with people and assisting people out in their, their small areas. But generally, it's a lot more oversight in looking at the bigger picture rather than um, as much hands-on with the, the, the nuts and bolts. That's that's generally done by the consultants or our external or internal people. And it's more of the oversight and making sure that the, the total picture is being you know, moving the right way. The strength is from the team and, and that's, you know, where everything is as soon as, you know, you're relying upon other people to be doing certain areas, it's, that's got a big impact on how you can deliver yourself. Valerie steps back in time to explore the places where he grew up. I was actually uh, born in Sydney, um, in, in Ashfield. Um, went through to Mudgee, uh, which is, at the time, it was a, a farming and a sawmilling area. Now it's it's quite big with wines and coal mining. Um, so Mudgee in, in New South Wales country, but moved to Gladstone and started all my schooling in, in Gladstone. Um, and so, you know, from, you know, probably have the ability to be calling a number of spots home. So, you know, it was probably four or five years old when I was in Mudgee and then, you know, probably up to about six or seven by the time I got to Gladstone. So uh, not, a, not a great deal of time to plant your feet in those other areas, but um, yeah, grew up and um, obviously they were good areas to grow up in. Obviously at that age, you were with your parents and my father uh, was uh, quite into into carpentry, uh, dovetail finishing and, and some of the higher end cabinet making areas of, of carpentry. Um, so it was probably an opportunity where he acquired a sawmill out in the Mudgee area. So um, it, it was in relation in there, it was the, the moving of the family out there to Mudgee um, to, to utilise and to be living there while he had the sawmill going. And you know, it was great to be able to run through in a rural area and you know, running through the fields with my brother. And it was uh, you know, certainly 
a much more relaxed environment, I suppose, to grow up in rather than city living. So I, I, I grew up in Gladstone um, and, you know, started to work there the first time. Um, you know, probably had a significant accident when I was a young young fellow there too, and that's where I uh, probably in grade one or two, I got burnt uh, through being boys, being boys and playing in the backyard uh, with, you know, fire and, and incinerators and aerosol cans and petrol. They sort of don't mix. So um, grew up in there, did all my education and schooling there. Uh, started doing some work there, played a, a lot of rugby league growing up as well. So uh, rugby league was a big part of, I guess, my sports and, and my social circles uh, whilst growing up. Um, and that also led me, I guess, to be looking at moving out um, into the coal fields, into Moranbar, uh, inland from Mackay, and to be working in the, the coal mining industry. It was probably certainly an assistant in uh, playing a lot of rugby league and being able to play it at a level which was attractive to some other teams in regional areas to be going out there and, and playing football, giving me a start into the coal mining industry. Valerie explains the locations of the different places he has lived and worked in Queensland. He shares how rural areas differ from the cities and why this is a great fit for him. It's northern Queensland, so Gladstone, Gladstone's in Queensland as well. It's about central Queensland um, and then Mackay's up towards the north Queensland areas. So, um, it's about four hours away from Townsville. Um, so it's not right up at the peak, but it, it's certainly up in the northern part of Queensland, yeah. And Moranbar is a is a little place about 200 kilometres inland from uh, the coast. So it was out in the, you know, very much the regional areas again where, um, you know, yes, at the age that we were there, um, <coughs> excuse me, there was um, TV and other things, but they don't have, a, a lot of the rural towns don't have the added uh entertainment districts or, or precincts or things like that. It's about, you know, interacting with people. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of degrees, that's is a great way to get up board because it allows you to connect with people skills and being able to interact with people and talk to people. And uh, that's a big part of life. If you can be talking to people, it's uh, certainly a major head start. I was 21 years old when I went up to Mackay. Um, so I had, had done a little bit of work. Um, actually worked at Armour Guard, um, being a bigger guy uh, as a young guy as well. Um, worked in Armour Guard for a while and did some uh, construction orientated work in Gladstone. But when I was 21, I was uh, moving up to Moranbar and, and stayed there for uh, there about 15 years and had a, had a great time in Moranbar. Started off with, um, of all things, explosives, um, obviously having had uh, the incident when I was a young fellow and being burnt, then moving into the explosive field, so I got to play with more dangerous toys. Um, but then it was moving into uh, doing a lot of machinery operations um, and driving the, the big trucks or, or the big loaders. And I guess that was good because it gave me a, a real first exposure into property investing. Um, obviously, you're on a reasonable wage when you're in the coal mine. So that was the introduction to property investing and you know, probably the, the, the downside or the bad side of property investing where uh, you do have a lot of spookers who will come and talk to high-income areas and high-income people. So I'd probably be fair to say that my first couple of purchases weren't the greatest, greatest choice.
Valerie shares about his move from Moranbah to Brisbane and at what stage in his career he decided to make a change and start investing in property. Um, it was quite early, probably, you know, if I moved up there when I was 23, I think we were looking at our first house when we were about 23. So um, there was obviously the realisation and, and I guess as everyone does, the initial plan was to be working up there for a few years and, and set yourself up and go back to the place you knew being Gladstone, but it was it was living there and enjoying the lifestyle, enjoying the interaction with the community and, and making, I guess actually when you do move, you make new connections and new networks and it becomes something that, you know, living in, in Moranbar there, you know, which is only a, a town of about 8,000 people at the time, uh, it was great. It was uh, certainly what I enjoyed and certainly, you know, what I probably still would have done other than um, progressing and, and, you know, moving into a, a full-time role with the trade union, which saw me move down to Brisbane. So coming from Moranbah, a town of about 10,000 people down to Brisbane, um, it was certainly a, a, a major change or difference, but it was... Um, you know, obviously the right move at the right time and it's allowed me to be continuing to move to where I am now. I guess it was it was more along the lines of um, the coal mining industry is called a heavy, heavily trade union industry. It's, um, you know, quite militant in that area. Um, and it was from, I guess, the belief that you can't be criticising someone to do something you're not prepared to do yourself or, you know, if, if someone was elected unopposed to do something. So it's very easy for people to be criticising and um, being complaining about the way someone does something. But unless you're prepared to do it or, you know, unless that person has actually had a com competitor, if someone was the only person prepared to put their hand up, it's very hard to criticise the way someone does a role. Um, so at times I wasn't happy where or, or how people were doing things and I with that mindset, put my hand up and said, okay, well, I'm going to run for that position as well. Um, and probably had very little experience in that world. And um, for whatever reasons, I, I, you know, soon become um, a shift delegate, move my way through to become one of the lodge executive, um, you know, responsible in leading the, the 500 so workforce and then, um, for that same reason, moved down to Brisbane and took on the full-farm union role. It was the fact that the only person who nominated was someone that I didn't believe I'd be comfortable with them doing the job. So I either had to put my hand up or accept the way they did the job. Coming up after the break, we'll delve further into Valerie's time working in the trade union. And when you're you're you know looking after a workforce or, or a membership of over ten thousand people, um, and seeing how many people had also been affected by investing in property in the wrong way, um, and probably a realization that you know when you're out in the regional areas, there is very hard. Then his career prospects post trade union. I became pretty unemployable, where. Um, for, for working as a blue-collar worker. I would have been a union troublemaker, so there would have been people who wouldn't have liked the idea that I had played an advocacy role looking after workers previously, so they probably didn't want me in the workplace. Valerie explains on the first property he purchased. So there, there was 
I originally, um, me, me and, and my partner at the time, we went to saw the local financial planner with the viewpoint of buying something in Brisbane. Um, bigger market, we thought that, that was the right option. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sharp and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Valerie discusses how long the process of moving into full-time trade union work took him. Uh, yeah, so that, that was probably over over a, a period of time, um, you know, a couple of years, probably three or four years in working my way up locally and, um, you know, moving into the full-time role uh, in about 2005, which was, you know, certainly a, a significant change. Um, you know, and it would be fair to say that at the time, I hadn't embraced IT or technology as well as some other people and uh, younger people had, um, and it was certainly something that I had to uh, adapt to a new way or a new life. I, I guess for the for the trade union, I, I was in the, the principle that the union, um, that the mining industry union, was that the officials not paid the same as the people they were representing. So the wage of the officials was always based off what the coal mining wage was and you didn't have the ability to run for a position unless you also worked in the industry. So it's, it wasn't a matter of people from outside the industry coming in and doing the role. It was people who had been in the industry and knew the industry. They were the only ones who could run for the position um, and to make sure that I guess the right people were able to run and were happy to run that they had to maintain to make sure that the wage was also um, the same as what they could be earning whilst they were working in the mines. So there was no real change from the, the wage point of view, but there was probably a bigger um, looking in. And when you're you're you know looking after a workforce or, or a membership of over 10,000 people um, and seeing how many people had also been affected by investing in property in the wrong way um, and probably a realisation that, you know, when you're out in the regional areas there, it's very hard, it's very easy for people to be going and making unrealistic offers or, or comments and that. Um, but you don't do the research, I guess, you, you don't do what you need to do. There's not as much availability at your fingertips. We're, we're moving into a different era now, I guess, with the podcasts and, and you know, much more uh, robust and established internet where everything can be at your fingertips and, you know, to not learn is is your own fault. Um, that's certainly changing. But I guess when you're not exposed and you're not surrounded by that like-minded people and, you know, as you said earlier, that mindset that you need to be doing those areas, it's... It's very easy to to be reliant upon the the views of other people um, when you're not exposed to 
the support systems that you can get with inside property groups and, and property networks. So there was a realisation and seeing that you know it wasn't isolated to myself. Um, there was a large number of people who had been buying the wrong way and, you know, were severely impacted and, and you know, greatly up to debt and affected, you know, whenever there was a change to their workplace uh, because they had bought the wrong way. He explains what he moved on to next after his time in the trade unions. He has always been passionate about helping those in regional areas access the same services as those in the cities. And this is what he set out to achieve. I guess it was seeing and realisation just myself it had been to other people. Um, having immersed myself in Brisbane, I uh, moved into looking at more of a you know, advisory service or, or a, a one-stop shop where I could continue helping uh, people in the regions by giving them access to the right consultants, lawyers, accountants, uh, whatnot, um, based in Brisbane, uh, being able to analyse and, and look at things in a bit more detail um, in in purchases by leveraging to talk to the right agents rather than just listening to spookers and just provide them a platform of information where they could go as a one-stop shop. So it wasn't daunting where they didn't know where they had to look or they couldn't work out where they should look. It was providing them an opportunity to have a, a large amount of resources and consultants into one spot to enable them to do some sanity checks on any any investments they were wanting to do. Um, and probably it was during that time that there was a realisation that, um, you know, people still liked property and, and enjoyed property and wanted to be in property, but just a generalised buy and hold option, something they were wanting a bit bit different, you know, looking at something a bit uh, different to that and looking at uh, other ways that they could be involved in property um, rather than just uh, buying and holding is probably a, a you know, a level of impatience, whether it be or, or catching up for lost time and going, okay, well, how can we do something that you know, has got a bit more proactive nature to it. We discuss when he made the jump to property development. It was finishing my time at the trade union, I became pretty unemployable where um, for, for working as a blue-collar worker, I would have been a union troublemaker, so there would have been people who wouldn't have liked the idea that I had played an advocate role looking after workers previously, so they probably didn't want me in the workplace. And um, the fact that I, you know, as, as a secretary of a union, I, I was in charge of the operation, uh, the business world didn't see that to be a business acronym where that was only a trade union. So there was uh, a realisation of having to create something for myself, and it was moving into the development space and, and I've been involved in that since about 2014. Um, a realisation that I, you know, through the choices that I had made, and I, I wouldn't go back on any of those choices now, but through the choices that I had made, um, it had led me to the path that I am now where there wasn't the ability to go back to a safety net and work in, and, and getting a wage. It was going, okay, well, I need to um, embrace the entrepreneurial outlook and, and create the wage for myself or create the the income for myself. So there, there was, I originally, um, me, me and, and my partner at the time, we 
went to saw the local financial planner with the viewpoint of buying something in Brisbane, um, bigger market. We thought that that was the right option. Um, they talked to us about looking at other options, uh, one of which was um, a house in the Mackay area uh, in Bucasia Beach. And the second one was a house and land package on Bribey Island. Um, so they were the first two and, and it's fair to say that you know, I still owe more on what the properties were paid for some six or seven years after I'd purchased them. I still um, owed more than the property was worth. So in looking at it now, there's a realisation that, that it was a spruker and there was um, a lot of incentives being paid to various people um, to get people to put their name on the line. Um, but as a 23-year-old who was on good money in the mines, there wasn't uh, as much of a... I had other things I was enjoying doing. I, I wasn't, you know, going to be doing all this research. Okay, yeah, cool. I'm going to take the advice of that expert. That's what we'll do. Um, and I can continue to do what I was enjoying doing, being playing football and, and enjoying life. So there, there wasn't the research that needed to go into it. Um, I think at the time, one of the... They were talking about Bribey Island. It was one of the last estates available in Bribey Island, which was over 10 years ago. And I, I do know that they're still opening up new estates in Bribey Island now. So um, the belief that it was the last lot of uh, land, house and land available in that area without doing the research was certainly an attractive idea. Um, the fact that they're still releasing lots here now uh, makes me realise that uh, that's something I should have looked at a lot more deeper. Valerie shares how many properties they have purchased for development, mainly for clients, and how many properties he has in his property portfolio. Uh, the last six years, we've uh, probably done in excess of 12 or 13 properties, um, probably in excess of $30 million worth of transactions, either buying or selling property. So, um, had a little bit going on. Then, he expanded on the types of developments he has done. I have done apartment development previously, also townhouses previously. Um, I've done a new build, uh, a higher end new build, um, and land subdivisions. But it's generally, uh, I guess, through the path and the realization that the land subdivisions are the area that I don't do want to play in. As you hone your skills further within the development space, um, that's certainly the area that we are focused on now. And that's our uh, primary. You, you could never say that you wouldn't explore something else uh, because you don't know what is around the corner. There could be something coming up that's just too good to refuse, but our focus is certainly on the land and the, the house and land options, so uh, providing the, the land that the builders can then package it up and, and utilise various selling methods to make sure that we can sell out the stock and uh, look after the investors who, who do come on board. Valerie sheds light on his main focus at the moment, which is land subdivisions, and expands on if he partners with the builders on his projects. We'll utilise a number of builders to provide people opportunities. The the build is is certainly something that should be up to the buyer as to who they want to build through. Uh, sometimes there will be people who will be buying it through in investment channels and they will already have something packaged up. But it's always in a two-part contract where they settle on the land and then they have a contract with the builder 
number one that provides them a better stamp duty opportunity because you're paying stamp duty on the land only, but it also provides them the ability to utilise an alternate builder if they wish to, or to utilise a builder where there has been designed packaged up as well. For further clarity, he explains if buyers can build through his company as well as purchase the land. We do work on having relationships to give people uh, choice um, and we can generally advocate on behalf of a seller to try and um, get the right price. But I mean, generally there's packages done up that, you know, one block might have five or six different builders who have got a design on there and the, the buyer might choose which one works best for them or they might choose to engage with the builder themselves. It depends on how much time that person wants to put into it, whether they want to be utilising something that's already been designed or whether they want to design their own place. He takes us back to a moment in time when he had one of his worst investments. We're looking at one that we did in Stafford, which was uh, a few years ago now, and it was on a busy road, and you know we had done developments on a busy road previously, um, and the realisation and going, okay, well, we were aiming, uh, our, our goal was to have the lowest house and land or land availability in the suburb. So we knew we were at the bottom of the suburb and we were going to have the cheapest available land in the suburb, which was, you know, reasonably close to the city uh, and the cheapest houses available. I believe that the generalised uh, the houses in that area were selling at about 540000 We were working on the idea that they were 520000 so we, we were going to meet the bottom of the market it was at the time that the Royal Commission into banking happened and just uh, the availability of credit just dried up remarkably. Um, and there was a, a, a significant learning for us that once there is that credit shortage, uh, those people who can still get credit move up and they're looking for the A-class properties or the B-class properties or the C-class properties there's no one left looking at the D-class properties. So they became properties that, you know, we, we certainly pushed and marketed uh, considerably. And essentially they were significantly lower than we had hoped for. Um, and based on what the evidence was that they would have achieved. Um, so as a company, we did, uh, <coughs> we had a learning not to be doing things on busy roads now. Um, regardless of discounting, because in times that money is hard, um, people you know, can push their way up to the best lots rather than just being so reliant upon set price. Everyone's prices has to come down and there's no one left at the bottom. Um, so yes, we did. We had a project that didn't perform and it performed negatively, but that's something that we absorbed as a company to make sure that none of the investors had to uh, had, have any absorption of that nature. Uh, they still, <coughs> excuse me, they uh, still had their interest return if they were on an interest return basis and uh, that's something we have to wear. So as a business, um, you know, yes, we won't do those, uh, those areas anymore and that was certainly a learning for us and it's one that we paid for but uh, number one is that you've got to make sure that the people that you work with uh, significantly, the investors. Um, uh, there's a rule, isn't it, that an investment is about the return of capital 
and then a return on capital. So we want to make sure that there's always a return off capital um, and we hope to make sure that the return on capital is positive. Valerie explores why he went down the path of discounting those properties initially and ponders if he could have done anything more. This was just a smaller development. So it was only two house renovations and a back lot. So we, we combined both backyards and created one lot of land and it was two renovated homes. So there was no real ability to do much more. Um, yes, there could have been a holding of the stock and we certainly did uh, explore that. But the structure that was set up and given that there was a, a few different investors, that isn't what they signed on for. So it was something that we had to go, okay, well, we'll sell them at a loss rather than having someone sign up for something that they they didn't want to do originally. So there was options that we could have looked at holding. We certainly did look at conversions into um, multiple, you know, mini boarding houses or, or key person accommodation. Uh, but at the end of the day, there was, I guess, fatigue from people in saying, okay, this has been going, this is longer than we, we want. So it was a matter of going, okay, we have to execute the the finalisation of the project for them. To get us back on a positive track, he shares his aha moment. The aha moment was through doing the education and, and you know, it's important to continually improve yourself no matter where you are and what you're doing in personal development. You know, we are our own best at Jim Valerie's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. Join us for part two where we'll talk about the relationships between the individuals involved in projects and the effects they have on the final product. So I am very reliant upon the builder as well. <laughs> you know, I can do everything right myself and if the builder doesn't play their role or if they make mistakes or they don't build things to the right quality, that has the ability to affect the overall project. How he makes decisions on which sites to commit to? It, it comes down to the site, obviously. So um, the more constraints the site shows when you, you're doing the research. So, you know, we've got some that you'd happily go unconditional on right away uh, because you know what the legislation says. Um, you build up your network, I can talk to my town planner straight away, I can talk to my civil engineer straight away. And that's next time on Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short six months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, 
Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 